Yeah, Father, we thank you so much for your great love and kindness in Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that we can celebrate all that he's done for us today. And we thank you so much for uh, the fact that you speak. You're a speaking God. And my prayer is that as I speak my words, Lord, from, from, from the Bible, you would speak your words powerfully and clearly to us in a way which transforms our lives from the inside out. Come, Holy Spirit, come and have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Excellent. So I've been told... Uh, I'm just going to move aside. I've been told that you've been going through a uh, series on the Psalms and you're up to Psalm 24, uh, which is a fantastic psalm uh, and really exciting to preach on. And if you want a title, then we'll call it Approaching the Creator. Um, sort of touch on a number of themes this psalm, and so it's hard to have one all-encompassing title, but approaching the Creator is what we've got. And I want to start by asking a question, and the question is this. What view of God do you come with this morning? What view of God do you come with this morning? Because we all have certain lenses that we put on at any time which will affect how we see God. Some of us might be coming this morning not as Christians. Maybe we're searching, maybe we've just been dragged along by a friend or a family member, and that will affect our view of God. Obviously, if we, we might think, well, I don't really believe there is a God, and if there is, he's someone who is distant, abstract, out there somewhere, but probably non-existent. But even if we're Christians, which m- most of us are, you still are affected by certain things which will affect how you view God this morning. Maybe it's circumstances of life right now. Maybe you're going through really hard times or really good times, and that will affect how you view God quite often. Or maybe the culture around us, and what it teaches us, and what it is um, speaking to us, has affected how we see God as we come this morning. Well, this psalm starts off in the first two verses with a quite clear declaration of who God is. It says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Very clear. God is the creator of all things. Uh, Verse 2, he founded it on the seas, he established it on the waters. Um, This kind of picks up on poetic imagery, which we see quite often in the Old Testament, of the the creation almost as as a building with foundations that God so the foundations are the waters and he's building it on the waters. This is kind of the poetic image we see quite often in the Old Testament. And he's building, the, the picture you see we have in the Old Testament is that God builds the, the world for his dwelling. It's a place where he is taking up residence where he dwells. And so he owns the earth as a result of being the creator. That's what verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Because he created it, he now owns it. It's a bit like God's a, a master builder, who uh, maybe some of you are a master, master builders, or, or you know others who are, and who have built, he's built a house, which is the, the world, the universe, for his dwelling. It's a great, beautiful mansion. And so a master builder who's building a house on this earth, um, uh, like literally building a house, he will, he will take great, great painstaking care over every detail because he knows he's going to dwell in this mansion that he's building. And when his work is complete, after working on it day after day, month after month, he looks back at it and he looks at this building, this mansion that he's created, 
and he takes delight in it. And that house now belongs to that master builder because he built it, he owns it. So it is with God. He built this universe for his dwelling and because he created it, because he founded it upon the waters, it is now his, it belongs to him and it is his right to do with it as he pleases and to do with the people in it as he pleases because he is the owner of all things. This is a great view of God. This is a big view of God which we need to understand right at the start of this psalm. Over every tiny detail of creation and indeed over every human life, God now rightly declares, mine. Mine. You are mine because I've created you and I now own you. Personally, I find this this start of the psalm quite challenging because it's all too easy for me to have, and I guess for many of us here, to have a small view of God, to restrict God, to bring him down to a small size where he's not God over all creation, but rather he's just a little bit of the creation, a little bit of, of my world. I can all too easily reduce God to God in a box. If I take around with me and bring out when it suits me and put away when it doesn't. And we're going to watch a video now, if possible, which is a kind of comic take on what it looks like to have God in a box. Ryan, hey, I saw you on the side of the road with that cop. What happened? Yeah, you got me going 30 over in a school zone. What? Are you crazy? Why would you do that? Well, obviously I was in a hurry. Uh, you must have got a huge ticket. Oh, no, because I had one of these. What is that? Well, this is my God in the box. I opened up the lid and uh, God took care of all my problems. He even had the cop apologize for pulling me over. Seriously? I'm surprised that little thing worked. Oh yeah, works for me all the time. No, that is dumb. Okay, tell him. Yeah, what you need is a super-sized God in a box, baby! Wow! I know! That's awesome! Yeah! Come on, you guys don't really think you can put God in a box? Well, of course. He's there for whenever you need him. But you need him all the time. Laura, you can't walk around town with God all hanging out and exposed everywhere. I mean, people would see that. Well, isn't that what being a Christian is? I mean, people need to see God. Okay, Laura, think about it like this. Let's say you and God go out to Burger Bonanza one night. You order a burger with no pickles, but they bring it out with pickles. Oh, I hate that. Okay, enough to ruin your night. So, at this point, you're going to want to tuck God back in the box, and then you raise your voice a little bit with the worker. And maybe the manager overhears you, and he comes and he fires the worker. And when everything's taken care of, you just pull God back out. He doesn't know any different. Have a good night. Nice. No, of course he knows differently. Listen, you can't just put God away when you don't want him there and then pull him back out when you do. It doesn't work like that. God wants a relationship with you all the time. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, what you're talking about is for perfect people like Jesus. And the Pope. Right, and Mother Teresa. I mean, we're normal people. Yeah, I don't even think I could live like that. So you're telling me you can live without God? Yeah. Can you live without God? Um, yeah, it's easy. Can you die without him? Can you die without him? Come on, guys. You can't live without him either. So, a little bit of comedy there, but I think that it is, on a day-to-day -day basis, very easy, very easy to live like that. 
take to reverse it, really, where God no longer becomes the owner and creator of all things who owns your life, to whom your life belongs, and to whom you owe all the glory and all the honour, and rather he becomes someone who can suit your needs and meet your needs. Your life becomes about you rather than about God. But this psalm starts by saying the whole world is about God because he created it and he owns it, and this is all for his glory. What view of God do you come with this morning? I think God wants to explode some boxes that maybe some of us have put him in. Blow them up and have this big view of God again. And that's how this psalm starts. In fact, restricting God and, uh, in, in, into a box, quite literally, is the most likely context of this psalm. You see, this psalm, most um, scholars would believe, is, was written... Uh, for the occasion of of carrying the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, which is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but it would have looked like something like this. And it was a big rectangular box, which was covered in gold and was carried around with poles. And the people of Israel, that's God's people in the Old Testament, would carry this box around with them as they were wandering through the wilderness before they had a land to settle in. And then, and, and during that time, it had various temporary resting places. And then it got to this point in 2 Samuel chapter 6 where the ark was being brought into <coughs> Jerusalem, where it was going to find a permanent well, a tent, and then in the temple. And they were singing this song as they were processing the ark of the covenant in, or certainly on the occasion of the procession of the ark of the covenant. You might think, well, why is this box so significant? Why sing a song? Because a box is coming into your city. That seems a bit of a strange thing to do. It's so significant because the Old Testament tells us that this Ark of the Covenant, at that time of, of, in the history of the world, was the place where God most manifestly dwelt, where his presence on earth was most clearly shown. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2 talks about how the Lord of hosts sits enthroned on the cherubim. There are the two cherubim on top, and it, talks, and it speaks how he sits enthroned. It is his throne, if you like, on earth at this time in the history of the world. And so the bringing in of this ark is then we're bringing in the, the, the most manifest presence of God that there is possible on the earth into this city. That's why we are singing and shouting about it. I think what the psalmist is doing right at the start of this is saying, yes, he's most clearly displayed on this ark, in this ark here on earth. But actually the whole earth is God's. Don't restrict God to a box. Don't limit him just to the ark. Yes, he's here, but the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so he would say to us, we don't have probably rectangular boxes that we carry around with us, <laughs> although that video pretended we did. But we do have other metaphorical boxes that we put God in. Let's allow him to blow those boxes up this morning and be God over all creation and over every aspect of our lives. We belong to him because he created us. Just take a deep breath in and out. Relax, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> nice, deep breath, but that's not why I asked you to do it. Just to relax you. That breath, you can only breathe that breath created God is sustaining you right now. He is giving you the breath to breathe. 
Yes, there's all sorts of science involved in that, but ulti- he's the ultimate source of that breath. Surely, then, we owe our life. Surely every breath now belongs to him because that is from him. And therefore it is for him. And I just find that so challenging. That's why I'm dwelling on those first two verses for a while. Because I know that I do what Paul says many, the whole world has done in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25, where I exchange the truth about God for a lie and I worship and serve created things rather than the creator, rather than the owner of this world. Maybe some of those things up there resonate with you in that picture. So what you maybe serve and worship ahead of the one true creator God. And because we've done this, because we've exchanged God, the creator, for created things in our lives, and most prominently ourselves, this great division, this great separation has occurred where God is now up here as the creator in all his holiness and we in all our feeble sinfulness and idolatry are down here and there's this massive gulf between us. And that's why it leads the psalmist in verse 3. That's why the next thought after verses 1 and 2 is the question in verse 3 where he says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Who could do it? He's the creator. And I'm down here in all of my mess and sinfulness. And the imagery, even that imagery of ascending the hill of the Lord is quite powerful, isn't it? Because it's like, I just can't do it. It's just too steep a climb. It's just too much of a, of a gap. He's, he's too high up there and I'm too low down here to bridge it. And what's his answer? How does he, how does he answer the question? His answer in um, verse 4 is this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, or um, probably a better translation, swear deceitfully. Notice the answer is all about character. Pure hands and a clean heart. That's both external and internal. Pure hands, clean hands, sorry. The external conduct of our life and a pure heart, the internal motives and desires in our life. Do you have clean hands? and a pure heart. He says, if you do, you can ascend the hill of the Lord. And then he defines it even more um, clearly in the next, next part of the verse where he says, not to tr- does not trust an idol and does not swear deceitfully. That's both vertical and horizontal conduct. Vertically, do not trust an idol. Well, what have we just been saying? Every single human, according to Paul in Romans 1, has trust in idols. We've all turned aside from the one true God and put our trust, worship the created things instead. So when I read that, I start getting uncomfortable. I think, can anyone ascend? Can I possibly ascend the hill of the Lord? And then he builds on it and says, the one who doesn't swear deceitfully, and this is, um, still has a vertical dimension in some ways, but also a, hor- uh, a horizontal dimension in terms of our dealings with others. Is there any is there any lack of truth? Is there any lack of um, uh, keeping your promises in the way that you deal with other people? Yes, there most certainly is in my life. I don't always deal with others truthfully and rightly entirely. 
because there's selfishness and there's envy that come into my life and distort my dealings with other people. And so as I read through this psalm, as I read who God is in verses 1 and 2, and then I read about who may ascend in the next verses, and I, re- I, I, get, I get disturbed. It really disturbs me. I think, can anyone ascend? Could I possibly ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer on one level is no. Absolutely no one can. Because no one has perfectly clean hands and a perfectly pure heart. And so it should lead us to repentance and confession. Saying, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy of ascending. I cannot get up to the holy place of God. I don't meet those conditions. If you do, if you think, well, actually, yeah, I picked that box and I picked that box, yeah, I could ascend, then you're deceiving yourself. Because no one can ascend in and of their own right. But that's why, in verse 6, it speaks of seeking the face of the God of Jacob. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Why does he speak of the God of Jacob here? I don't think it's just accidental. We're talking about the God of the Israelites, the God of the church now today. But I don't think he's doing it simply just because that's an Old Testament name I'll just put in there, who, of course, turned to his, his name and changed to Israel in time. But why did he use the word Jacob? I think it's because Jacob was most certainly not a truthful man. He was a man full of deceit. He was not a perfect man in any way. And yet, what did he do? Towards the end of his lifetime, he wrestled with God, and he found forgiveness and blessing. The one who can ascend is not the perfect one, but the forgiven sinner. The one like Jacob who says, I don't have it together, but I can find forgiveness. And in that place of being a forgiven sinner, I can now ascend the hill of the Lord. Not because of my right, own, own, own status and right, because of what God has done in me, in forgiving me, in wiping me clean, in giving me clean hands and a pure heart again. And so that's in terms of who our God, who, who the view of God, what, hold on, what the view of God is that we have this morning, that affects it even more, doesn't it? He's the creator God, but he's also the God of Jacob, the forgiver God. Who says, in me you can come and climb and ascend into that most holy place. And what happens in that most holy place? Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and vindication, or also could be translated righteousness, from God, his Saviour. In, in that intimate place with God, in that most holy place, in that close relationship with him, there is blessing upon blessing upon blessing. It's a bit like you, you enter into the spotlight of God's love and blessing in that place, and you just receive every spiritual blessing that there possibly is in the heavenly place the most prominent one of which is indication of righteousness, of being counted as clean and pure in his presence. I don't know if you want to ascend the hill of the Lord, both because you can, because you can be forgiven by God, but also because of the blessings that you receive in that place of close relationship with him. And so that's where we get to in this psalm. If we read it on its own terms, in its own context, that's where we get to. That's what the original uh, uh, writers, I think, would have, would, have, would have got to. That's where they would be up to this point. But the reality is that we now have further revelation. The reality is that we now have 
someone who has been revealed to us that the Old Testament didn't have in full form. They simply have pointers to this one. And who is this one? He is one who has completely, perfectly clean hands and a pure heart. And his name is Jesus Christ. And this is God become a human being 2,000 years ago. And he became a human being so that he could fully and perfectly represent all of humanity. Saying, I'm going to live a sinless life. I'm going to be clean and pure where you could never be clean and pure. But not only that, I'm going to represent you even to death on a cross. And in that place of dying on a cross where God become man was crucified, all of our impurity and all of our uncleanness was placed upon him. And because he was fully God as well as being fully man, he was able to give his purity and his complete cleanliness. So when we talk about being a forgiven sinner who can ascend the hill of the Lord, when we talk about standing in that most holy place and receiving all the blessings of righteousness and innocence and purity, we now as Christians, as people who live after Jesus, realise that it's only in and through the person of Jesus Christ that we could ever do that. It always has been and always will be. Even in the Old Testament, the only reason they could ascend as forgiven sinners was because of the work of Jesus happening many years later, but it extended back to them. They just sacrificed animals. Not because that achieved anything, but because it pointed towards the one true sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now it extends forward to us 2,000 years later as the church, recipients of this blessing, of this righteousness, of this impurity of one man 2,000 years ago. That's staggering, isn't it? It's a free gift, but I don't deserve it and I haven't done anything. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Every single one of us, in and through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has ascended in his own merit and in his own right. That's why in Hebrews 10, it says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, that's now the confidence we have to ascend the hill. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, we're going to be celebrating this later, his blood shed, his body broken. That's the reason we have confidence to come. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us do it. Let's not just say we've got this great opportunity. Let's actually do it day by day by day. With a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings. Get this, having our hearts sprinkled, cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies, the hands, washed with pure water. I think... The Hebrews, writers of the Hebrews most likely had this psalm in his mind. The parallels are so strong, particularly talking about hearts and bodies, hands, external, internal. That's the reason we can come to the most holy place. And then as we draw to a close in verses 7 to 10 of this psalm, it sort of builds to a crescendo. Beautiful verses. This psalm is just verse after verse of just staggering beauty, really, in terms of what it is saying to us, both in the original context and now as Christians. It's like the camera. We'll just read it first. Here we are. Lift up your head, O you gates, and be lifted up, O you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. It's like a victory chart, isn't it? It's like the camera in verses 1 and 2 is panned to God. 
and we've seen him as the creator and owner of all things and all his grandeur. And then it's panned to us as feeble, simple humanity who may assent. And through Jesus, we now know that all can. And then it's panned back to God. See his glory and peace again. Now he's described as king of glory. And in the original context, again, it's talking about the king of glory coming in with the ark into the, through the gates of the city of Jerusalem, coming in and taking up his residence in that city, in that place, being, um, if you like, the holy place of God here on earth. And the victory chart, it's like a, I mean, it wouldn't be out of place, obviously, the words would, but the kind of tone of it wouldn't be out of place, I imagine, in a football stadium. <laughs> would be great, great to be charged with the king of glory in a football stadium, but it wouldn't tend to happen. Um, but it's just, you can, I just think it's it, it just being bellowed out by those as, as the procession is going into, the, into Jerusalem. Get ready, city of Jerusalem. The creator and the owner of the universe is coming. Get ready. When the, when the presence of Almighty God comes in, everything changes. The city is going to change because he's now here. Get ready. Nothing can stop him. He's the Lord, strong and mighty. There will be no obstacle to him. No power can compete with him because he is unrivaled in his glory and his splendor. That's the original context. But as Christian readers, we have two further applications that we can see from these verses as we read them through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Firstly, carrying on from the previous verses where we spoke about Jesus ascending the hill of the Lord and giving us clean hands and pure hearts through his death. Now we can see him ascend, resurrected and ascended, going to the place of all glory, the highest place of honour, the city of heaven with the gates, and it's like the angels in heaven are shouting and chanting and saying, get down, you gates! <laughs> Be lifted down, you gates! The King of glory, Jesus Christ, that is God himself, is coming in and taking up residence in a heavenly city as the King of kings and the Lord of lords at the right hand of God's Father. This is now the place of all authority, the place of victory, and this is a victory chant. It's like one angel is shouting, who is this King of glory? And all the other angels are shouting, he is the Lord, Lord Almighty, the Lord strong and mighty. And again, who is this King of glory? He is the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Shouting it out. Jesus has now ascended to the, most, uh, to the highest place of all authority. But we can read it one, one level further as well if we think about what um, it says. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door, at the gate, of your heart, and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Not only is the, the one of the King of Glory who has ascended to that heavenly place and the gates of heaven have fallen for him, but now he says to every single human being on earth, I want the gates of your heart to fall for me because I'm the King of Glory up there, but I'm also the King of Glory because of the work of Jesus Christ. Right there, knocking the door of your heart, really personally, really deeply, really close. It's the same king, same one as verses 1 and 2, who's the creator of all things, who's now, right now, saying, I want to own your heart. I want to, I want to be king of your heart. Would you let me in? And some of us might not be Christians here today. Some of us might say, actually, I've never really done that. I've never really let the king of glory into my heart. I encourage you, just, you can pray Andy or one of the other elders or to myself afterwards if you want and just make this pray and say I just want to do that it's a free gift Jesus has done it it's only through him it's not through what you've done 
easy come and take up residence in your life today. But for the majority of us who are Christians, there's still an application because I reckon, for many of us, he's just God in a box size in our heart. He's not really owning every aspect of our life. Let me in. Eat with me. Let me be king of every aspect of your life. Don't shut me out from those bits, those days of the week, or those certain areas of your life where you really don't really want me. Let me into every aspect and every part as you let me have free reign in your life. Everything will change. Your life will be so much better. It won't be easy, but your life will be so much better with me right there at the heart of it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that this psalm speaks of who you are as the creator of the universe, the world and everything, and the owner of all things, including our lives, the king of glory. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that as we read this psalm through you, we see how you fulfill so much of it, how you are the one who has ascended the hill of the Lord with clean hands and pure heart, in whom we now can ascend to that most holy place with God. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you also, that King of glory, who has stormed the gates of hell and now entered the gates of heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father in all authority and power. But thank you also that you're the God who draws close. And I want to pray for every single person here today, both Christian and non-Christian, wherever we're at, different places in our lives, different stages of the journey with you. I pray, Lord, that the gates of our heart truly love Actually, I need to lower that God's box in that part. And let him be created God over that area. Over that area. Yeah, we repent, Lord, of wrong attitudes, of wrong hearts, of wrong motivations, of impure hearts and unclean hands. And we receive forgiveness afresh through Jesus. And Lord, thank you that there is such blessing as we enter your presence. Thank you as we do that in a moment through communion. There's such blessing that flows to us from these elements that they represent, the, the, blood, the blood and the body of Jesus. Thank you, Lord.